I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, my name's Stuart Miles and welcome to the PocketLint Podcast. This week, we've got new details on the big announcements from the world of video calling, including Zoom's new software update, Google Meet going free, and how others are trying to keep, well, in the game. I talked to anthropologist Genevieve Bell, a distinguished professor at the Australian National University, as well as vice president and senior fellow at Intel, about how we're changing the way we interact with tech, but what coming out of lockdown actually means and how we could use contact tracing to make that a reality. And Cam joins us to talk about the Mavic Air 2 drone from DJI. It's just been announced and Cam's been going through the steps to get in the air to find out whether it's worth your cash. But first, back to you, Chris. Tell us more about what's been happening this week with Google Meet. Well, it's very obvious that the big thing at the moment is video conferencing. We've all seen the meteoric rise of Zoom. And everybody's been asking, well, where are the other providers? Where are the other players in this game? And we've really seen this week Google has stepped up to try and push its own product, Meet. Now, Google Meet comes from a long line of evolving Google products that will deal with video conferencing and other platforms sharing stuff. And it used to be called Hangouts Meet. They've basically dropped the Hangouts to just refine it as Meet. It is, in essence, a business tool for collaboration online. And originally, it was available to those those Google users who had a G Suite subscription. Now, that normally applies to businesses of all sizes and schools and other settings like that. The real change that's happened this week is Google has said that it's going to be making Google Meet available to everybody. So if you have a Google account, you'll now be allowed to use Google Meet. And this is potentially quite a big deal because Zoom has seen this rise because anybody could get on with it. You know, you just go, say you want to set up a video meeting and you're there with 100 people having a big old chat. Google wants in on that action and that's exactly what they're doing. So starting from next week, they will roll out this functionality to individuals and everybody will then be able to get onto Google's cloud video platform. Now, how does this, you've obviously been playing with this and Zoom, and I know that Zoom's been updated, had a big update as well this week. How do the two compare? Well, Google designed Meet to be very lightweight and easy to use. And in some people's minds, that will mean that it's slightly basic, perhaps. I mean, it's very, very good if you've never used anything before. You can go to Google Meet and, I mean, it's incredibly easy to get to. You just go meet.google.com and you're into it. And then all you really have to do is set up a meeting and off you go. And it contains a lot of useful tools that businesses will use, like screen sharing. But that's also becoming popular with um, other people who are playing games and want to do some collaborative stuff, you know, keep up with their friends and stuff like that. But at its core, it really is the same sort of thing. And the free offering that they're giving away will also let you have 100 participants on one of these meetings. The interesting thing, though, is Google is lifting its time limits away. So you can have 100 people on a meeting for 24 hours if you want to, and that will be free. Whereas Zoom still has a 40-minute limit. I mean, it's 
Uh, Zoom has been lifting those limits slightly to make it easier for people. But really, Zoom is pushing people towards its subscription models, whereas Google had the subscription model before and is now actually boosting the offering to some of those people who do subscribe so they can get even more, such as 100,000 people able to tune in to watch your live stream and stuff like that yeah i think i mean the, the big struggle for me is that you just i've even noticed it when watching television in that sense that now all the adverts even look like the zoom tiled conference you're like hang on a minute what's going on here yeah and so it just seems it, does it feel that everybody is still trying to play catch up with zoom or are the tables slightly turning i well everybody has seen a huge uplift in these services and and uh, Google have said that they've seen sort of 30 times the peak that they normally would have. Um, so you're looking at hundreds of millions of users for these services. I think Google, the, the message that Google is really pushing, though, is one about security, because that's been the thing that people have been criticizing about Zoom, is that there are holes in the platform, there are things that people are uncertain about, and they're doing a lot of negative headlines around Zoom. And Google is coming from a slightly different position saying, this was built for security for businesses. We have uh, we have encryption in transmission and in storage. Everybody has to be a, uh, a, a user. You can't be anonymous on it. You have to have an account to be able to use the service. And it's built on Google's cloud infrastructure, which we already know is very secure anyway. So that's Google's real angle here. Everybody who is having doubts about Zoom and whether Zoom was secure enough to use should be happy mm. with the security that Google has in place. What we also know, and you mentioned it in your introduction, was that uh, Zoom is also making changes to try and boost its security credentials. And this week, we've seen the rollout of Zoom version 5 which added some of the extra things in to try and make the platform more secure, like mandatory passwords and, and you know some of the trying to increase the encryption levels and stuff like that, just to try and make sure that these things are a lot more secure. The, the I think the important thing to note about security is that you really need to look at what you're doing on this. If you are a government body having a meeting, then you will need security and you should have security. And whoever oversees your IT should mandate that you are using a secure platform. If you're two people yeah. sitting in your kitchen, having a beer on a Saturday evening and talking about all the things you're not doing, it's probably not as important. Still to come, Cam gives us his verdict on the new DJI Mavic Air 2 consumer-friendly drone. Uh, and it's actually nicer to hold because it's a bigger size. You don't feel like you're holding this tiny little thing. I've known Genevieve Bell for over a decade, and the conversations we've had during that time have normally left me not only wanting more, but full of questions and inspiration to delve deeper, and the conversation we had two weeks ago was no different. Having spent the past 18 years in Silicon Valley helping guide Intel's product development by developing the company's social science and design research capabilities, she's now based back in Australia looking at how effectively and ethically to manage the impact of artificial intelligence on humanity through better design and management of tough technology. Understanding how we interact with technology in a world that's changing faster than most of us would like, and how we're going to use technology to help us contract trace the continued spread of coronavirus is likely to dominate our lives over the next 12 months. But before we delve deeper into these topics, I thought it best to start by asking Genevieve how she actually ended up doing what she does today. <laughs> it's always a question, Stuart. So what I should have said in that introduction is, yeah, those are all my formal titles, but what you really need to know about me is I'm a cultural anthropologist by training, and somewhere along the way I left the university sector and joined the tech sector, which is how you and I met. So 
I've spent the better part of the last 25 years working in and around Silicon Valley. I did my PhD at Stanford in the late 90s. Uh, my background in those days was Native American ethno history, feminist and queer theory. And so the okay. better question is, how does a person who does that <laughs> end up at Intel? And the answer is a good Australian answer. I met a man in a bar. Uh, the longer version of that is I met a man in a bar in Palo Alto and he asked me what I did and I said I was an anthropologist and he said, what's that? And I said, I studied people for a living and he said, why? I probably should have guessed he was an engineer at that point. Um, But I said I thought people were interesting and we ended up having a conversation about what do you do with that kind of knowledge and he introduced me to the people that I would ultimately work for at Intel and it was a fascinating moment to take what I knew how to do as an academically trained anthropologist and try and make it relevant in the tech sector in the U.S. And for me, the job was always really about how did you take a rich understanding of what made people tick, of what they cared about, what they were passionate about, what frustrated them, and use all of that to help drive the innovation cycle. That's what I've been doing. And and that's people listening to this will probably think, hang on a minute, Intel is predominantly known for making processors. And certainly back in the late 90s and early 2000s, they would, you know, they, they were just just sort of powering computers, like the Pentium of this world. That is, that is correct. How do you think that they believed that that would change the way that a processor works? Oh, listen, it was always a good question. It used to confuse everyone I knew, like, wait, what? <laughs> you work where? Yeah. I think the thing to remember is it's absolutely correct. Intel was then and still is, you know, one of the premier producers of microprocessors on the planet, right? We have made them for more than 50 years um, in one stream or another. But it turns out if you want to make a good chip, basically something that will power an object, you need to have a viewpoint about where that object is going, not just technically, but what's it actually going to do. So, you know, what is going to be the applications and services it supports? What's the device it's going to be in? How do you imagine that device might get used? What are the kind of workloads you anticipate? And it turns out that having someone who cared about the human dimension was an important additional voice to add into the people that were thinking about material science and physics and how to build a factory and how to think about all the literally computational pieces that sat inside the chip. But my job was to have and help drive the conversation about what would happen when it was built and then reverse engineer from that. So part of my job was to think about the future, right? What would the world look like in five or 10 years time and how would people be using compute objects? And if you could get that right, you could make better decisions way back up the kind of innovation path and make different decisions about what you actually put into those microprocessors and then into the systems and the chip and all that stuff. So basically I was used as a an early sensing device for what the world would be like. And before we talk about the future, which I want to talk to you about, over the past, over the last, you know, since you started working with Intel and, and in the way that it's changed up to now, how do you feel the world has changed from the way that oh. we use computers? Gosh, so if you think back to 1998, which feels, well, it is a different century. (laughs) It was like a different world. (laughs) Uh, We still mostly, if you had a computer, you had a desktop. Chances are in 98, you didn't have a mobile phone. Uh, By 2000, you might have had a mobile phone. Certainly if you were in the UK, you did. But it was a Nokia candy bar and it didn't even have predictive texting, like if you can remember back to those days. Uh, So, you know, 20 years ago, computers were a large lumbering thing that you visited, right? They sat in a place in your home that you went to. They still had software that turned up on disks. 
They were barely connected to the internet. If they were, it was mostly a modem. Um, you weren't really consuming media on those objects. You might have been gaming, but the gaming was pretty lightweight. Uh, and you certainly didn't have a notion of compute you carried around with you. Uh, and so flash forward 25 years, right, or 20 plus years, we now have computing in our pockets, on our wrists, in our TVs. There are a whole lot of objects around us that are now smart and predictive. There are services that didn't exist back then. There are mm. ways of getting to the internet and content and to each other. There are whole categories that didn't exist 20 years ago. Think about everything from Uber to Airbnb to Netflix, all which take advantage of ubiquitous computing platforms, fat, fast pipes to circulate content around and open APIs to let you manage digital stuff, right? All of those things didn't exist 20 years ago. And so how have you had to change your approach to how humans are approaching that technology? I mean, I remember you yeah. famously telling me that you know a child growing up in a touchscreen environment at home will never believe that screens weren't touchscreen and then having had my own children you can see that's very much the case if you know you go <laughs> you you see you see them touching things and you're like this is not a touchscreen this is broken you know that kind of thing and i was i was even in a pub uh late last year and seeing this guy there was a message on the tv that came up and this guy got up from his table walked over to the over to the pub screen the pub the you know, the screen of the TV and pressed it thinking that it was touchscreen and then was like realized what he'd done. So how, how have you managed to, to, <laughs> to work out how we interact with these things uh, ahead of the curve perhaps? Well, so part of it is having a clear sense about what it is that humans care about versus what the technology does. And I think it's sometimes important to separate those things out, right? Is that there are things that human beings will care about regardless of what the technological apparatus is that lets us do it. Right. And so there are some things that, we care about and have cared about for decades and centuries. And if you tap into those, you'll always do well. So, you know, humans are inherently social. We like a good story. We want to be connected to one another. We'll use whatever platform we can to do that. I mean, you and I are both old enough to remember texting when it was really cumbersome. Yeah. <laughs> we used a number pad to spell letters. <laughs> it was painful um, because we really like the idea of having lightweight contact, right? So, Part of the way you think about the future is to be acutely aware of the present and of the things that we are likely to care about that will persist. And then part of it's also knowing what are the things that people are willing to change on. Like when things get sort of so much easier, you think, why would I still be carrying around an A to Z? You know, Google Maps not only knows where I am, but it likely knows where I'm going and it knows how to get me there. Uh, you know, maybe I've got an A to Z because occasionally I get out of phone range, but I think most of us don't want to go back to a paper map system in our backpacks. Um, and so part of it is, you know, are there places where the digital replacement is so much better than the paper version that you can't imagine going back? But then part of it's also certain sorts of ways of thinking don't change. I mean, I've always sort of struck in London, right, by the fact that you have mobile phones with an extraordinary amount of location-based technology, but you still have taxi drivers who learn the knowledge, right? <laughs> yeah. Still will get quite crotchety about what they know and why Google isn't good enough. So there's sort of something that, that tension, right? It's always interesting. And so transferring that on to today's society and today's environment and, and the situation that we find ourselves in uh, with coronavirus and stuff, how do you feel technology is going to play out within this this new world that we're starting to to experience and live in either through the current situation with lockdown but also the 
the world that we're going to be facing going forward? Oh, that's such a good question, Stuart. Uh, there's a, a, a theory inside kind of old school anthropology that says that moments like this are not the birth of a new world, but a limbo in between two worlds. And one of the things that characterizes those kind of interstitial moments or the moments in between knowable things is that it's a time when a lot of behaviors are different. We're willing to tolerate different kinds of habits. So different food, different clothing, different standards of behavior. We do different things because these periods of limbo are kind of outside the rule set. And this feels like one of those moments, right? And we are definitely behaving differently, I'm sure, in Britain under lockdown as we are in Australia under lockdown, right? There's a yeah. higher degree of sociality, even though our social circles are restricted. My sense is there's a lot more contact between people than there has been and of a different nature. We've changed and are willing to tolerate different kind of ideas about what it means to do work, occupy our homes, how we're thinking about how we dress, all those things, right? The harder question will be what pieces persist when we go forward into the different world, like we move out of this limbo period into a next steady state. Uh, my sense is there's a couple of places where there'll be change, but I wouldn't want to predict what that change will be. I think our okay. ideas about time and temporality will be different. So I suspect for some of your listeners and probably for you too, there's been this very strange sense over the last couple of weeks of time feeling much different. Some of it faster, yeah. some of it slower, some of it just weirdly indeterminate. Like, is it Tuesday? Is it Wednesday? <laughs> I've kind of gone with the, I've kind of gone with the, is it this day or is it that day? Kind of yeah. approach. <laughs> exactly. So I think some of our ideas about the sharpness of time feel like they might change. And some of the ideas about the things need to be like, what's, um, how quickly does a need really have to be fulfilled? And what are we willing to wait for? What feels urgent? I suspect some of those things will change. And maybe some of our relationships to synchronous and asynchronousness, like does everything have to be real time? And I don't have a sense about that, but I get a sense that's a space where there'll be change. And I think... And, and do you think, um, you know, a lot, of, a lot of big tech companies are starting to use tech that we've become accustomed to? And we've, you talked about Google Maps earlier about sort of the idea of using, you know, tracking data, about um, about using uh, sort of contact tracing, you know, yep. with the technology of that ideology of, of, well, a phone knows where you've been. A phone knows who you've seen, who you've talked to with Bluetooth, which is where Apple and Google are both trying to look at uh, how, you know, where we come in, who we come in contact with and, and the like, you know, would imply that that you'd be able to see where, you know, who I've met, how long I met them for, where I met them and, and go from there. And yet that, whilst that on one positive side, that feels like a fantastic opportunity and a fantastic technology to help us control coronavirus. It also feels like an incredible invasion of privacy, certainly in the wrong hands. How, how do you think we would cope with that? Well, one of the things I'm always sort of struck by, Stuart, is that the world in which we talk about notions of privacy has hardly been a stable one, Right. It's not like before coronavirus there was an agreed-to sense across the entire of the British public or the Australian public about what privacy or privacy was. <laughs> like in any given yeah, population, yeah. there'd be some people going, eh, I don't have any secrets, I tell everyone everything. And other people going, I do not want anyone to know anything about me. And there's sure. a whole spectrum of people's ideas about privacy, privacy practices, notions about who should know what about whom. Those have been complicated for a long time. I think one of the complexities here is that we are sometimes willing to tolerate 
different behaviors because it feels like this is a again this kind of moment in between right so the standards feel different my suspicion is a lot of human beings would be willing to give up information if they thought it would help both themselves their families and their communities they may be willing to give it to a public health authority or in your case the nhs they may not be willing to give it to the government or gchq (laughs) so who has the data and what the data is is important Certainly using Bluetooth as a proximity sensor is very different than using GPS data. Um, the interesting thing about Bluetooth is all the edge cases where it might be wrong. Um, so if you live in a high-density apartment complex or a flat complex, you may have a shared wall with someone and your phone may park itself next to their phone on a semi-regular basis, but you'll never have contact with them. So how do we discount that example? Or you may be one of the many people I know in the UK or Australia who has two phones because one's for work and one's for personal things. And you don't always carry both of them simultaneously. So we've got some interesting kind of challenges in how you break those pieces apart, because you may have two phones, but you're still one person. Mm. We know there are some people who won't have phones. We know there are others who, for reasons of economic inequities or other kinds of disadvantage, may only have a phone sporadically, who may turn off the Bluetooth because it drains the battery. There's all kinds of things there, right? So for me, some of the edge cases are really important in making sure that we don't assume that the technology works because we imagine every person has one phone and that phone is always with them because that's just simply not the case, right? And then I think there are a secondary set of questions about who's collecting the data? What is it they plan to do with it? How is it going to be stored and for how long? Most of the best examples, best in class examples of contact tracing technology or trace and track technology globally. So Taiwan's considered to be good, Germany too, Singapore, a couple other people around the traps, uh, mostly are instrumenting it in such a way where the data has a sunset clause, so it's not kept permanently, where certain kinds of data is allowed to commingle, but not permanently. In the case of the Apple-Google solution, they will make the data available in an anonymized form only and only to public health organizations. So they're restricting where the data is being kept and the data sits on an individual's phone and all that is moving are the secure keys. So the people that are working on instrumenting the solutions are mostly working quite aggressively on privacy preserving and privacy protecting instrumentations. But I do think there are open questions about who's going to use the data, how long it's stored for and what the intentionality is. So, you know, are you contact tracing in order to find individuals, isolate and treat them? Are you doing it to penalise people because you think they're breaking quarantine? Are you exposing people to police scrutiny that might be stripped of context? So there's sort of, there's bigger questions in all of that. And I think they amplify ambivalences we've all always already had in this space. And beyond COVID-19 and perhaps more happier times that we've yet to come, once we've gone beyond this limbo, what do you think one of the, is, and this is probably the toughest question I'm going to ask you, what do you think is going to be the defining sort of tech or use of tech over the next decade? Oh, interesting. Listen, I've been fascinated by some of the things that have made a comeback or seem to be finally done and dusted in this period. So, If you look at some of the usage data over the last six weeks in countries that are in lockdown, laptops have made a comeback because video conferencing is my suspicion. Mm. Better to do that on a laptop than a phone. 
I actually suspect one of the things that will be the consequence of all of this, however, is not about the platform use, but the non-platform use. I suspect one of the technologies that we'll be looking at over the next decade is not actually a digital technology, but a human one. I suspect there's something about uh, voice and presence and physicality that's going to matter. So we may end up feeling very differently about seeing each other again and being with each other again. And there were already trends before COVID-19 about the kind of willingness and the ways people were thinking about the physical and the analog, not the digital and the virtual. So I think that trend may accelerate. There's also some stuff that seems to be almost done and dusted. It's been really interesting to be in Australia, which has been a big market for uh, tap and pay or contactless payment services sure. so much more than the US, right? So every time I go back to the US, I bang on things with my card and nothing happens and people just look at me like, what is your problem? <laughs> I was like, oh, yeah, that's right. Cash, weird. Um, I haven't seen someone use money here in Australia in weeks. <laughs> like, yeah, it's, it's the same in the UK. Cash has just stopped, right? I mean, it's got to be out there somewhere and I'm sure there are markets where it is still circulating. But the amount that has gone to contactless payment systems, tap and pay and other things feels like that's accelerated a transformation that was ongoing. Likewise, some of the stuff about working out, about technology for working remotely and distantly, educational stuff, they feel like there's a couple of those that um, are being accelerated in this period of time. But I suspect for many people who are in the kind of early adopter market, tech users, white collar workers, knowledge workers, that bracket, coming out the other side of this is going to feel like I don't want to look at another screen for a bit. Like I've looked at go. too many screens. I've looked at too much tech. There's been too much video. I'd actually like to just have a moment in, could I have a tree maybe, <laughs> sunshine on my face, a park, a pub, I don't care. So I wonder if one of the things that will actually happen here is a bit of a reset about how much tech we do and don't want and how we want to think about using it. That's me being optimistic. DJI is back with an all-new Mavic drone, the Mavic Air 2, and this one seeks to bring the power and finesse of its high-end Mavic models and put them in a much smaller, more affordable package for you to buy. But is it any good? PocketLink contributing editor Cam Bunton has been setting up the new drone to find out whether this is the one to get. So, Cam, what do you think? Yeah, first impressions, it's really good. I mean, it, like you said, it takes all the power, all the features from the more expensive Mavic 2 series and puts them in a smaller, a lot more consumer-friendly package. So I think that's what makes this really appealing. And, of course, it's, it's more affordable too. Now, when you say smaller, how much smaller are we talking? Because I know there's restrictions about how small you have to go to get aid for it to stop being a toy, but also for yes. you to need a license. Yeah, so this isn't a toy drone. This is about 507 uh, grams. So that's about double what you'd need for it to class as a toy drone. So you still do need to get your license and, and make sure you do the theory tests in the UK and get your flyer and organizer ID for this one. Um, and was that difficult? Have you done? I presume you've done those tests. Yeah, I've done them. No, it's fairly easy. It's quite an easy theory test with 20 questions, all multiple choice. Uh, you answer the questions and then if you get enough answers right, you pass the test and you get your ID. It's pretty simple. Well, congratulations. And so when it comes to uh, when it comes to actually flying the drone, what's changed? What are they what are they made? Is the controller better? What are they what have they done? Yeah, so I think the what they've done is again this controller is better. It's a it's a bigger, more solid control, which actually means it's going to hold your phone a little bit more sturdily. It's not as flimsy in that regard. 
Uh, and it's actually nicer to hold because it's a bigger size. You don't feel like you're holding this tiny little thing. And flying it, you've got the sensors on the bottom, which you didn't have on the last Mavic Air, so it can detect how high it is from the ground and make sure it avoids um, crashing into the ground if you fly it too low, for instance. Now, people I've talked to who've got drones and stuff, they, go, they rave about them. They think they're the best thing in the world and all the other stuff. And then about a month later, after they've got it out of the box, they, they, don't, they stop talking about it and stuff like that. Do you, does, how, how do you think people are going to stop this just becoming a five-minute wonder? It's a tricky one, isn't it, with the drone? It's exciting when you first get it out, but it's um, it's one of those things that I think you need to have a purpose for having it. If you're a filmmaker and you really would need something in the air to give you that bit of extra cinematic effect to your videos, I think you would you're more likely to carry on using it than if you're someone who just wants to play with it as a as a basically a toy. Uh, but then, if you're spending seven hundred pounds on a drone, you you're probably going to take it seriously, I would think. And do you think this is uh, something people should go and investigate further and have a look to see where they should get one? Yeah, definitely. Like I said, it's because it's a lot cheaper than the the bigger Mavic 2 um, and because of what it's capable of, including I think the, the battery life is something that's definitely worth mentioning because it can go up to 34 minutes before you need to bring it back down and put a fresh battery in or, or charge it up. And that's that's the best of any Mavic drone, even the bigger ones. So. Um, yeah, I think so. I think it seems to be the one that I would... It's the easiest one to recommend that someone go buy, I think, out of all the ones that have been released so far. Well, that's it for this week's show. Hope you've enjoyed it. Until next time, pip pip.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.